you would this morning turn to the last chapter of the first book of the Psalms, that is chapter 41. Psalm 41. As you turn there, perhaps I can remind you in some ways it's even a bit of a joke in evangelicalism to be flippant with the term blessed or blessing. After, After all, I, I ask myself, myself sometimes, there are those, those I know who answer the question, how are you, with the term blessed? Now, what now, what is an unbeliever who doesn't understand the scriptures, particularly the Psalms, about blessing, to understand when you tell them that you are blessed? Now, I understand some use that as an introduction, perhaps, to tell them of the wondrous works of our Lord and Savior, but sometimes they don't even explain what that means. In book, in book one of the Psalms, there are three chapters that begin with the phrase, blessed is. The first one is chapter one. The second one is chapter 32. And the final one is the last one, chapter 41. You'll find out that in the first chapter says, blessed is the one who basically avoids walking and living an evil life, but meditates on the law of God forever. The second one tells us, blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. This one says, blessed is the one who considers the poor. Think of those three things. Those three blessings or those three conditions of the blessed person as we read this psalm which concludes this section. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words. While his heart gathers iniquity, when he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Let's bow briefly in prayer. Lord, this is your word. It shall stand forever. It shall not go forth and come back void. Lord, help us to hear it by the power of your Spirit with ears to hear. Help us to understand it with hearts to understand. Lord, I pray that the things thought about, the things done here, and the things said here will be consistent with your word or else pass away and never be heard from again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what came first? The chicken or the egg? If you're a Christian, you know the answer to this question is the chicken, because it was created by God, as were all creatures. But the question today 
is somewhat like that. What comes first? Receiving mercy or displaying mercy? Now we show mercy according to scripture. We show mercy because God has been merciful to us. But notice the first verse as well as one of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 verse 7 where it says, and Christ tells us, Blessed be the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So what comes first? The mercy or the display that we show of mercy? I think it works together, doesn't it? You see, our, our mercy that we show others is in response to God's mercy shown to us. We all know that we don't deserve any blessing from God. If you're perfectly honest, you know that at times you have rebelled against God, you have sinned against God. All the words of sin, sin, rebellion, transgression, uh, iniquity, all those words can be applied to you. And because of that, one sin, one place breaking God's law brings the punishment of death. After all, if Adam and Eve could be punished with death for eating fruit forbidden in the garden, I'm sure you've done worse. I know I have. And so in order to live and breathe and have our being, and in order to be given the wonderful grace of forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ and eternal life, we have been shown mercy. And because of that, God wants us to exhibit that display or that type of mercy to others. That is, those who don't deserve it. That is those who are in need. That is those who cannot, as we like to say in America, help themselves. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. You see, mercy is given to the merciful because the next phrase says, in the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. In other words, those who display this mercy as an act of God's faith will be shown that mercy because of the relationship God has with him. Mercy is given to the merciful. And then in the middle section of this psalm, David writes, in particular, mercy is requested by the merciful. And then you might notice the first point is much like the last point this morning. Mercy is given to the merciful. First of all, what does it mean to be merciful? Here's the definition of the merciful. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. Now, it's interesting. You might even have a footnote there. It says the poor means also the weak. But the word consider is the word to see or to perceive or understand. You know, it's interesting on this particular aspect of mercy. We talk about mercy ministry a lot, particularly the deacons talk about that, particularly the mercy committee that we have in our church talks about that. What does it mean to be merciful? The world around us sometimes says that the way we're merciful is we slip a dollar to somebody who's in need on the corner. And if you hadn't noticed, they've been multiplying lately. One's on the corner in Myrtle Beach. I've noticed that. Some will say that it's because we have now a welfare system in our government and society that we're merciful by displaying programs that can help individuals in times of need. But to understand or consider the needy, 
to the poor, is not just to slip them a dollar or understand that the welfare system has a safety net, but it's actually, if you're considering the poor, it means you're spending time with someone. You're listening to them and responding to them. You're seeking to understand them. Now, I know that not all of us are called to do this in the same way, and I know that if we were to do this, we could do this every waking minute of our lives, even here in Myrtle Beach. But the point is this. When we know someone is in need and they come to us for help, what do we do? Are we merciful to them or are we hard-hearted? Here's what God says. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on a sickbed and his illness to restore him to full health. It's kind of funny what David says here. He says, on the one hand, blessed is the one who displays mercy to others. But then he reminds us there's going to be a time when we need it. We need mercy. Here are the blessings of mercy described on the one who is a displayer of mercy. First of all, the Lord will save him in the day of trouble. The Lord will deliver him. In other words, there will be a time when we too are in a condition of need, particularly in this psalm, it seems like there's an illness that's described here, just as it has been in the last couple psalms. They kind of all fit together, 39, 40, 41. There's an indication here, particularly that this illness might have been the consequence of a sin of that individual. You know, not all illness is caused by the sin of the person who is sick, but sometimes it is. And here it says, the Lord will save in the day of trouble. Secondly, verse 2, the Lord protects him and preserves him. In other words, there will come a time when we are in a state where we cannot protect ourselves. Perhaps David's talking about his enemies who will seek to destroy him and bring him to death. Perhaps he's talking about the dire circumstances that he might face in all kinds of different situations. In those circumstances, the Lord will protect and preserve. But perhaps the most amazing thing is what God does when we're sick. He goes on to say he'll be called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. Recognition that sometimes those things are in light of our dire straits in a world of war, in a world that is divided. But verse 3 says the Lord sustains him on his sickbed. The word is to support or sustain. If you've been on a sickbed, you know sometimes it seems overwhelming. Particularly if this is an illness that can lead to death. And you need all the support you can get. I think particularly the individuals that I've ministered to over the years where a caretaker has been at the beck and call of someone who is on their sickbed. It's not easy to do this. It takes lots of energy, not just to be able to do things, but to handle the emotional aspect of what's going on. And it's interesting here. It says the Lord does this. The Lord comes to the sickbed. Now, obviously, 
The Lord uses sometimes secondary means, you know, someone who might provide the water and the sustenance and all those things or the, the uh, medicine or whatever it might take. But here the idea here is we know that sickness goes beyond the physical, doesn't it? It's emotional. It is terrible to have to go through the circumstances of an overwhelming illness. And perhaps one of the most important things is to be able to feel supported and feel strength. And here it is. Who does this in these circumstances? It's the Lord by his mercy. In fact, it says in his illness he restored him to full health. The words are, the Lord will turn his illness around. David understands there are times when God decides to heal his people. And in those circumstances, God will restore, turn around that illness so that he will be blessed in this life as well as the next. I thought about this idea of mercy. There are all kinds of books written on it, all kinds of topics about how to deal with it in the church. I got to thinking perhaps one of the best illustrations of this is when Peter and John went to pray. It tells us they met a lame man on the way. There's even a song, a children's song that goes with this. And the guy asked him for money, as he did. This guy was there at the temple gate, so that's where he, he, he was begging consistently on a day-to-day basis. Everybody in the community knew who he was. And he asked Peter and John for money. Peter and John didn't have any. They were itinerant missionaries by this point going out to proclaim the gospel now that Jesus had been sent off into heaven. And they said, we don't have money, but we will give you something that you need. And by God's grace and the gifting of God's Holy Spirit and the power within that gift, they were able to heal this man. But what they said was interesting. Silver and gold have we none, but what we have, we give to you. What they had was time and energy and the personal ability to talk to that person in the need that he had. You see, they discovered, they knew that this man, it wasn't really money that he needed. Now, did he want money? Yes. Would money have helped his situation? Absolutely. But his need was healing from his lame condition. So, too, when we're merciful, we're not flippantly merciful in that we want to throw money at the problem. That's what government does. That's what so many of us do. We want to just throw money at the problem. But if we're truly merciful to somebody, we're going to come alongside them and listen to them and discover exactly what their need is. We may not be able to meet it. We can't meet everybody's needs. In fact, Jesus reminds us there will always be the poor among you. But at the same time, to be merciful is to treat them like a human being made in the image of God. Hearing them. Seeking in loving care to try and meet their needs. This is what God does for his people. He meets our needs. What is our greatest need? Our greatest need is forgiveness from sin. Verse 4 says, As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. He just said, You're merciful to those who display mercy. 
And then you read this verse, and David is saying, Be gracious to me, for I have sinned against you. You see, there's need for mercy due to sin. I have to say, I put the question mark there. Mercy requested by the merciful, because in this section of the psalm, it appears to be that David might be admitting he has sinned in displaying mercy. That's the context, isn't it? The context is God is merciful to those who display mercy. And then David says, be gracious to me, I've sinned. Could it be that David is saying, here is a circumstance or situation which I certainly was not merciful be gracious to me. You see, our need for mercy is because of two things. First of all, of course, our physical condition. We know that in this circumstance, it, it, it appears to be that the guy is, is ill. That's why he's referring to God being gracious on his sickbed. That's why he's talking about being restored to health. That's why in the context of these psalms, you see over and over again this kind of nexus or connection between sin and illness. Not because illness is always connected to an individual's sin, but because we have to recognize sometimes we're ill because we've sinned. But it's not just the physical condition, it's the spiritual condition. Be gracious to me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. He recognizes that he needs more than just physical recovery. He needs forgiveness from sin. And of course, we know that sometimes the circumstances can be so overwhelming. The condition of illness or the condition of a need to be forgiven and restored relationship with the Lord, in those circumstances, it can be exacerbated by our enemies, can it? This is what 4 through 9 describes for us. He, he asks for grace here, but he recognizes it's not just that he's ill. It's what happens when he's ill in regards to his enemies. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? In other words, they're waiting at the door. They're saying, hey, he's sick. Great. He's our enemy. We can't wait till he's dead. They desire his death, and not only his death, but his defamation. His name perish. In other words, they wanted him to be not only to die, but to be forgotten. They can't wait for the time when, when all of the statues put up in King David's presence are torn down. All of the memorials and the plaques that represent the good works that he's done are removed. They want no trace of him left. But they'll still come to him and offer him support. Here's what it says, when one comes to see me, he utters empty words, while his ark gathers iniquity, and he goes out, when he goes out, he tells it abroad. In other words, he gives false sympathy. You know those folks that come, they don't really mean it, they feel obligated to do so. In David's case, he's the king, so some of the uh, emissaries of the other kingdoms around him are going to come and give the blessings from the kingdom and so forth, and all around you know that under their breath they're saying, I can't wait till you're dead. But oh, by the way, be comforted in your time, we give you good reports from our home country. And you know that sometimes it happens even personally. You know sometimes when somebody comes and they don't really care about you, but they feel obligated to go perhaps for their reputation or perhaps because it's the right thing to do in our 
cut you know, our particular culture or all those things. They don't really care. They're giving you false sympathy. And of course, what do they do? In addition, they're not only telling it abroad, they're whispering together about me. Notice what it says. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. In other words, they whisper and they plan harm. You know, it's interesting, this idea of devising evil or imagining the worst. It's actually they claim a word of Belial upon him. Perhaps you've heard that word in scripture, Belial, B-E-L-I-A-L. It's used at times in reference to deception and falsehood, and even the enemy, the great enemy, even Satan himself. They claim a word of this. In other words, they're claiming that he is ill because he has done something bad. Now, of course, David admits this. In this case, he says, I am in a time of need because of my sin. I need healing. And yet they're saying, this is going to bring death. In other words, he's beyond salvation. But perhaps the worst is this. It says here, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. It includes even a personal betrayer. Perhaps you recognize those words that are alluded to by Jesus at the Lord's Supper when he's about to hand the bread over to Judas and he says to him, you're the one. Go do what you need to do. In our passage that we read earlier in John 13, when he's there and he's uh, washing the feet of the disciples, and towards the end of that illustration or that uh, event in the life of the disciples on the day of the Lord's Supper, he says, even the one who is my close friend, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. You know, so, so what seems to have taken place here? is here is someone who he expected to be giving true sympathy, who he has expected to be a, a source of comfort in his time of illness, someone who was respected and close to him, and that person has been swayed by those who are whispering against him, by those who are planning evil against him, has convinced him that perhaps David really does deserve death after all. And so he's ready for him to die. I don't know about you, but I've heard in the news that there are a few political figures in our country right now that are in legal troubles. One of them is former President Trump. Another one is the son of the current president, Hunter Biden. As you consider their particular time need, for after all, if you're in legal trouble, you are in need, probably directly related to some sins that you have committed or have been accused of committing. But I want to ask you the question, what news outlet, what political pundit, what esteemed journalist is concerned about the welfare or soul of these two individuals? They're whispering. They're wanting them dead. They're wanting them politically dead. They want them out of the way. Those from the left want Trump dead. Those from the right want the Bidens dead. 
if either contender, Donald or Joe, were to get sick, who would be their friend in time of need? Scriptures tell us the Lord is. My prayer is that both the Trumps and the Bidens would know that the Lord is the Savior of sinners. And that both of them would rely not on their own wisdom, not on their political friends, not on their ideas, not on any of those things, but upon the Lord to know that he, as the hymn writer says, is our friend in Jesus. After all, when that hymn writer said, what a friend we have in Jesus, I think even of this psalm, someone who in our time of need is there for us. He cares about us, and if we come to him in faith, he will show us mercy and forgive us of our sins, and perhaps his plan would then be even to restore health in us, because he gives mercy to the merciful. Verse 10 reminds us of this request again, but you, O Lord, be gracious to me. The framework between 4 and 10. Here at the beginning and at the end of this section, the psalmist says, be gracious to me. The first one says, be gracious to me because here is what my problem is. The second one, despite our sensibilities in 21st century America, says, be gracious to me because I want to be able to rise up and repay my enemies. The request here is for mercy to repay his enemies. Now, he's, he's not even saying here, like it says in so many of these other psalms, Lord, I'm just waiting for you to take care of my enemies. He says, by your grace, if you're gracious to me, then I can get up and take care of them myself. Should we pray that? I don't think necessarily we should pray that with the wrong motive. Lord, that I want to be the instrument of vengeance upon other people. What he's saying here is, Lord, you are kind, you are merciful, you are righteous. Even your name is dishonored. If I can have a part in your plan of repaying these enemies, let it be so. Because here's, here's who takes, takes care, care of the enemies, it's God. By this I know that you delight in me, my enemy will not shout and triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence, uh, set me in your presence forever. You see, this is a request for mercy based on God's history, his work with his people. But the most important one of these is not that God's going to come back with a sword and defeat all the enemies of David, it's, it's not, not just, just that we're going to see all righteous injustice takes place. It's this. God, God delights in David. This, this history is of a personal relationship with the Lord. By this I know that you delight in me. Here is a sinner. He's already said, I need mercy. He's already said, I have sinned against you. He already recognizes he is unworthy before God. And perhaps if my understanding of this context is right, there are times he's not showed mercy to others. He's not deserving of God's mercy. And yet David can say, you delight in me. I don't know about you, but sometimes I need to hear that. I look at myself and I look at what a mess I can be. I look at the circumstances and how I complain about things. 
I look, I look at, at the circumstances and how I fail to do things I know I should do. I look at those things that, that, that I've done that really I should not have done. I think of the relationships I've had with people that have been broken and it's partly my own fault or entirely my own fault. And I think, how can anybody with all that history and all that background really like me? God delights in me. Because he has a personal relationship with me. You see, this is the difference it makes when we get to know somebody. They search us out by name. I got a phone call this week from somebody I hadn't heard from for about three years. He's going to call me back on Wednesday. I know he wants things from me. He wants money. But he knows me because when he came to the church asking for help, I sat, I sat down, down and listened to him, and I gave him an opportunity because of the dignity of man to go out and do a job and earn some money from me, and I gave it to him. And so he knew to ask a church for my name. Not just to call the church blindly, not just to call them because he wanted something, but he knew to call me. I don't know that I can help him this time. I wish I could. I wish I, wish I could, could do more than give him the money he wants. But, but I, I do know this. He remembers who was kind to him. I remember God has been kind to me. I don't deserve it. God remembers that he has been kind to us when we don't deserve it. He does not forgive when he calls us to be his own. It's not a one-time and an off message of kindness. It's a commitment of forever grace. And, and so, so David, David then with confidence can say this, I have the knowledge that in the end my enemies won't win. They will not shout in triumph over me. I know that the enemies of the church of Jesus Christ will in the end not win. They may win all battles in my lifetime. They may win in this generation. It may appear as if this generation is going down a dark path never to return. But I do know that the scriptures tell us the gates of hell shall never prevail against God's church. And so we have confidence. We have confidence that God will win over his enemies. We also have confidence that God will uphold us. In this case, in appreciation of our integrity. Now, that sounds funny. David, the sinner, needing mercy. David, the sick person, needing restoration. David, recognizing that God is the one who sustains him and defeats his enemies and all those things. How can David have integrity? On the one hand, we're reminded these words are not only applied to David. They're applied to our Savior, Jesus. In part because we know verse 9 was referenced in the crucifixion week, that Jesus could lift up this verse to remind them all that he had a personal betrayer, someone he had invested in and spent a couple of years intimately with, who he had taught the gospel, who had even entrusted to go out amongst those 12 and go out in pairs to do wondrous miracles and proclaim the gospel. Someone that he entrusted even the financial situation of the group to. He was the treasurer of the group. And this guy betrayed him. 
So when it says this on the one hand, we say, but you have upheld me because of my integrity. We hear the words of Jesus, even as he's going to the cross, confidence in God that the enemy's death and sin will be defeated on the cross. And that in the end, despite the terrible circumstances of his death and the suffering that he had on our behalf, three days taking the penalty of our sin, God would raise him up. So we too... Where does our integrity come from? It's not because we're sinless. It's not because we have been so merciful to everybody we encounter. It's because we have integrity. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us. It's an alien righteousness. And because of this, he will preserve us how long? It's not only a personal relationship with the Lord that we have, it's an eternal relationship with the Lord that we have. What a wonder, what a grace that a God who is there for his people, even in their disturbing consequences of their sin, even in their dire times of need, even in their times of admitting their sin, perhaps even a sin of being merciless to others, God will not abandon them. You see, this song closes the first book. It has all those elements that the first book has reminded us of. There's confession of sin. There's a desire to be a man of integrity from Psalm 1. There's Psalm 32, which is saying to God, basically, I'm a terrible sinner, I need your grace. There's life lived in a vicious, hard world. Isn't that so much of the Psalms? Lord, help me, I am in dire straits. There is recognition that God is our only hope. He is merciful, but he is also able. He is worthy of praise. He personally is in my life. You see, we're reminded by psalms. These psalms that we've read through the last year or so, Psalms 1 through 41, in all of the circumstances that we find ourselves, God is there. He does not forsake his people. And in all these relationships, we understand we come to him in an attitude of confession, recognizing we don't deserve the gifts that he gives us. But then, that he wants us to be changed so that we can be like the man of blessing, the one who has been shown mercy, so he gives mercy to others. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this section of the Psalms. We thank you for Psalm 41. We thank you for all of the word of God. It is true. You have committed to us. You show us mercy, not because we deserve it, but by your grace. Lord, help us to live lives worthy of our calling in Christ, that by God's grace, by your grace, your mercy expressed to us, we might be merciful to others not just for the sake of our own reputation, but that you would be glorified and these might be shown the blessings of mercy as we have been. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.